Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writer's Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you'll also find out about the Creative Writer's Tool Belt handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from my expert guests and me in one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writer's Tool Belt podcast, and it's helpful to you on your writing journey. It's your job to get the reader off their smartphone and make them care about your work. So says my guest for this, the 131st episode of the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast, and he is the award-winning writer and psychiatrist, Tadi Thompson. He says a lot of other things as well in this episode, some of which are a bit political, some of which are fairly big spoilers for his work, and some of which are just a little bit salty, hence the E for explicit label on this particular episode. So I give you fair warning of these things before we start. Now, this was a great conversation and it's given me some real insight into the method and approach from this excellent author. But before we come to that conversation, in other news, I've been away this week in a little cottage in darkest Norfolk, furiously editing the space opera novel that I've been working on for nearly a decade now. And just this weekend, I've sent it off to beta readers. So I feel a certain sense of achievement there. Yes, it has taken me that long to get to this point, which I hope is an encouragement to any of you who are making slow progress on your project. Don't give up. You will get there. But don't feel you have to take as long as I have to get this far. Also, I'm working on another project related to creative writing advice that I hope to be able to tell you more about really soon. I am really excited about this particular initiative. And as soon as I've got something that's in a fit state to share, I will tell you more about it. So back to this episode, and I'm delighted to bring you the conversation that I had with award-winning writer Tadi Thompson. As well as being a writer, Tadi is an artist, and his novel Rosewater won the Noma Award in 2017, and his novella The Murders of Molly Southbourne also won a Noma Award in 2018. Now this conversation goes far and wide. I had great fun talking to Tadi, and I learned loads of stuff from him. I hope you enjoy listening to it. I hope you learn something from it. Here it is. Okay, so Tadi, welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt. It's great to have some time with you this evening. Thanks for having me, Andy. So I want to start with a question, or a variation of the question I always ask everybody that I talk to you. Just to start with, can you tell us a little bit about some of the cultural influences that informed your childhood? What were, And that could be books, TV, cinema, theatre, whatever it is. What were the things that kind of culturally shaped you, would you say? Uh, the Fantastic Four... Yep. Captain Scarlet, Action Man, The Wombles, Warzel Gummidge, The Six Million Dollar Man, definitely. Yes. Pictures of the of this Marvel hero, the Submariner. I'd never read anything about him. I just realized he looked a little bit like Spock because he had the ears. Um, <laughs> Star Trek, yes. Yeah. Um, James Bond, Sean Connery's Bond in particular. Okay. Uh, Jungle Book. Jungle Book, I think, was the first... It's the first thing I ever saw in a cinema. Right. And I, I okay. remember specifically going to see going to see it and really being affected by it. A whole bunch of spy novels, a lot of them lost in time. Mickey Spillane, Raymond Chandler, yeah. um, Dune for sure. Um, comics, lots and lots and lots of comics. More comics than is healthy for anybody to read. <laughs> and, you know, possibly games like Space Invaders. Okay, yes. I'm, I'm being very broad here, but these are the things. I mean, Alice in Wonderland is a book that I read as a young person several times. And I also copied out the Tenniel drawings quite a bit. Yeah, So yeah. very familiar with that. 
honestly, that must have sunk down into my subconscious in a very primal way because yeah. of the number of times I read it and how I broke it down. And I think I even wrote Alice in Wonderland fan fiction. Okay. Um, I, of course, I didn't call it fan fiction then, but I, no, I kind of no, wrote because no. there was no more to read. There was no more of it to read. So I wrote some more adventures of Alice. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? If you come to the end of the story, the only way you can create more story that you've read is to write it yourself, isn't it, I suppose? Exactly. I could see, a, immediately see a connection, I suppose, between because you've just given us very quickly there a real eclectic mix of the fantastic, I would say, because there's elements of science fiction and fantasy and, and the weird and, like, touching on horror in some of that. And I can see that reflected in your work now. I don't think, you know, I don't think you're a single genre writer at all. I see a whole bunch of themes across across what you produce. Would you agree with that? Definitely. When I say this, I don't mean anything against genre, but I don't classify myself as a genre writer per sure. se. I classify myself as just a writer. Yeah. I would I will write anything at all that occurs to me. Anything that I feel like writing, I would write. You know, so probably, you know, I would I would mix genres. I would just put I'll yeah. put whatever is it well, whatever I'm interested in at the moment, I'll put all of that in there. Yeah, there's a lot of it. I love reading and I love books. And that's kind of, that's bound to come out in some way or the other. Sure. So if some really cool spy thriller idea came to you tonight, you, you'd be yes. quite happy to write that. I would accept that I, I'm contracted to write a few things now. <laughs> I probably wouldn't be able to do it um, for about one year. I would sketch it down. I would write a yeah. few Whatever it is that is burning a hole in my brain, I'll write it down, yeah. but I'd be storing it for later because all the way up to 2020, I'm probably busy. So I, I, right. I know I know what I'm going to be doing yes. because yeah. of contracted stuff until okay. that time. So <laughs> I wouldn't be able to write it until 2021. <laughs> Perhaps that's a good problem to have. I don't know if you, because you know, as you say, you know what you need to do. Um, so yes. thinking about you as you are now, what are the cultural influences then that inform you, would you say? We talked about as, as you were growing up, but what about the person you are now? Well, now, I mean, of course, you have to think about the two, the two largest sources of influence that have occurred since I was a child. One of them is the Internet. Yeah. And that has given me access to a whole new set of, I don't know, people, places, everything. But the other thing is that I spent a lot of time in Nigeria. Mm. You know that it it it's a whole new repository of different images, words, manners of being, body language, mm. everything. Mm. You know, so that it, it has changed a lot. It is it is mixed a lot of what I used to be into something entirely different. Mm. You know, you know, for for my money, quite you know, quite interesting. The language, the use of language um, in West Africa, it actually incorporates the fantastic into everyday interactions. And it is, you know, there's a tacit understanding with the person you're talking to that, okay, well, we don't really believe this, but we do believe it, but we don't, but we do, <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, you know. So if you're talking on a, on a highly rational level, if you're talking in a business sense, you still use the fantastic, but you kind of de-emphasize it. On the other hand, if you are in a church or a shrine or a mosque, then you overemphasize the spiritual. So yeah. they're versatile that way, but it, there is no way of using any of the languages, at least any of the languages that I know, um, without involving the fantastic. Yes. Okay. So would you say that the places and cultures you just described there in Nigeria are 
are quite comfortable with we believe it and we don't it is and it is not with that the kind of di- that dichotomy that that, that that people are comfortable with without trying to kind of nail down something definite that 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 that, that sense of the mysterious i suppose or the unknown is fine well let's put it this way we make pretensions to rationality <laughs> in this side in this side of my culture let's put it that yes. way okay. so we talk about the age of reason and all of that mm. and yet still use phrases like knock on wood yeah right we still you know we we still kind of talk about using salt circles and you know unlucky number 13 and horseshoes you know cold metal for binding witches and the like and it's still in the language if you look for it everything is just still there in the language it's just that we kind of banish it from public discourse and we banish it to specific areas like telling of stories, mm. poems, mm. you know. Uh, mm. So it's kind of banned to those areas, but it does break out in language sometimes. So it's not it's not particularly different in that in that sense, is, is what I'm trying to say. Yes. It's not different. Okay. It's just how it's done. You get more restrained, right? Yeah. So there's more emotional restraint. There's more emotional continence. Whereas in, you know, like in the West of Nigeria, where I, you know, the West and East of Nigeria, where I mm. lived, mm. you know, you're, you're allowed to, express your emotions to whatever extent you can drive it as far as you'd like to get to yeah and it would yeah. be understood or okay. you can take it to a you could go to there's a there's a there is a tribe in sudan i think the Nur. they're called the Nur. yeah um, and i'm saying you know part of my background is in anthropology so one of the things they do is they cast out they have these spirits called jinn yes um which i guess came along with um with the Arabs when they came, yeah. you know, when they go back then, maybe they brought it with them because a lot of that, if you read the thousand and one nights, um, they're, they're talked about in there and it talked about in the Quran as well. Anyway, the point is they have, they have ceremonies where, um, there's an exorcism of the, of the jinn spirits from people. And during this time, people are allowed to act out various roles that they would not ordinarily act like. So, a woman might a woman might pretend to be smoking even though the culture forbids her from doing that. Yes. She might walk like a man. You know, you're allowed to take on roles that you wouldn't ordinarily do, which may be a way of resolving certain tensions. Like mm. if you're not allowed to do something, there has to be a way to get it out. Yeah. Yeah. If, if something is forbidden, then there has to be one way of getting that um you know, getting that action or that emotion out. You know, so what I'm trying to say is that there are acceptable ways of getting the excess emotion out or mm. the excess mm. melodrama or the excess of, uh, I don't know. There, there are ways in which human beings deal with such things, you know? Yes. So, yeah. So for example, in Britain, I, you know, like I'm saying, for example, that yes, you will not, you're not, you know, people are very restrained here, yeah. but it's football. You're allowed to be whatever it is you want to yeah, be. Yeah. Yeah. You can then bring out all those emotions. You can yell, you can scream, you can clap your hands and drum and blow whistles. And everybody allows that because that's the acceptable manner yeah. in which to express things. It's, it's so, interesting, yeah. isn't it? it? It's almost as if every every culture has to have a pressure valve or some way in which to let off some steam or some way to, to present something which is not normally presented. It's, it's yes. and, and I'm it's a fascinating subject. I mean, we could talk about the psychology of that and, and how that spills into literature and storytelling. Oh, I think storytelling can, can give that kind of cultural outlet 
as well. Um, yes. But I want to talk I'll talk about you as a writer, I suppose, moving into that. How did you start yeah. as a writer? Part of it is what I told you before. It's the necessity of wanting to read mm. more stories, you know, more stories and not having any access to them and therefore doing it myself. So I would say that my proto-storytelling came from two sources. One of them was my primary school teacher. You know, when I was growing up, I was in Wimbledon. Right. And my primary school teacher, and I've forgotten her name, but she would give us a large sheet of unlined paper. She would draw a line across the middle and she'd say, draw a picture on the top and then write a story at the bottom. Okay. Right. And yeah. she would pretty much every weekday because she saw that I really <laughs> liked it. She'd give me one every weekday and say, we'll do that. And I really loved doing that. You know, and she used to encourage me, yeah, do, do it again, do it again. It's really, what's this about? And she would like, she, she, I think she was the first person who taught me that look kind of used the whole picture like she would say okay so why have you drawn this but you haven't written about it so write about you know write about everything in the picture mm. basically mm. so she taught me that not to leave anything out it, it was kind of like an early form of attention to detail you know and, and also an early form of you know making me giving me the discipline of writing something every day which is what i was pretty much doing and the second initial source and I'm talking, I was, we're talking about age five and six here. Yeah. Um, was, um, was a Fantastic Four comic that I had when I was, you know, my mother bought it for me from, and I remember there was a fair on Wimbledon Common and she bought it for me and I finished it. Apparently I wasn't interested in reading anyway, but I was interested in reading this. So she said that I had to learn how to read it for myself. Yeah. And when it, obviously when it finished, I wanted to read more. And since comics were only sporadically available, I had to draw my own. So I used to draw and write my own comics, you know, from about when I was six till a very, you know, till a very embarrassing age, actually. I think I still did one in my first year of university. I think that was the last, that was the last full comic I ever drew was in my first year in university. And then life became too busy. Yeah, and I was under, yeah. I was under pressure to grow up, obviously. <laughs> um, you know, there's a whole thing that, look, comics are for kids and you had to hide it and so on. So there was, there was that. Um, but I kept, I kind of kept doing that for a while. When I was 15, I wrote a James Bond pastiche, which I filled, I filled it in a notebook and it seemed like the biggest, it's, it's, to me, it was like war, war and peace. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. me, a massive notebook that I filled with words and one long adventure. And so I basically, you could say that the proto writer had probably started you know, from when I was a child, yeah. A lot of people I talk to, uh, writers, they will say it really was from a young age. It manifests in some way or other from a from yeah. a young age. I did some kind of ridiculously silly comic till I was in the sixth form. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I stopped. I, I now think, you know, actually, if, 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 I, if I was that age now... Comics are so much more cool now. I'd probably just keep doing exactly. that. I can't. Yes. I can't draw to save my life. My drawing is crap. I really can't. I'm not even. I'm no. I'm not an artist like you are. But I can draw silly things, and I can, I write I, I stuff. You can. You can always collaborate with an artist. It yeah. Doesn't actually yeah. I mean, you I know? wrote some silly story when I was really young, and it was about I don't know five thousand words. I thought I'd written the Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, or something. <laughs> so when yeah. like, when you said you know your notebook, I thought, oh yeah, I know what this guy's saying. Yeah, that's what it feels like. It feels like, yeah. wow, I have filled a notebook with words that, yeah. you know, from just my head. It's, you know, it's so. amazing. It's just think I've achieved this thing. It's massive. But anyway. Yeah, but, but, that, yeah. see, but this is the thing. That is the primal joy that you should always aim for when yeah. you're writing. Yeah. As long as you can still feel that primal joy, then you can do it. The moment it becomes work, 
I'll tell you now, the moment it becomes work, I will stop. I, I will just stop doing it. If it yeah. becomes, if it becomes a slog, then I'm not doing it, you know, because I want to continue to feel the way I felt when I filled that notebook. That's how I want to continue. Yes. And I, one of the, one of the challenges I find sometimes, cause I, cause I focus on creative writing and what is good creative writing. There yes. are moments where I think I need to stop thinking about what's good about, you know, the rules of creative writing or the guidelines or something and just enjoy writing again. Yeah. And, and, or, or, and that's, that's always a tension I find because you can't boil it down to just rules. It's got to be something you love doing. Yes, exactly. You know, and, and that's the thing. And, and rules are restrictive. I, I think it's more, it's best if you can, you know, think about it in terms of, okay, well, these are guidelines or principles that yes, might. Definitely. Yeah. Some brilliant writer comes along and just breaks the rule and they yeah, get and away with it. People, yeah, because people always say what works for them and then they make yeah. them rules. You know, they say, well, yeah. this works for me. Like, well, you know, like, I mean, God, what's his face now? You know, Elmore Leonard. No, it's not, not Elmore Leonard. Who wrote Rum Punch? It is Elmore Leonard. Elmore Leonard, it is him. Elmore Leonard said that you should avoid writing in slang or something like that. That was one of the rules of writing, you know, yeah. like. Hell no. Sometimes you do have to write it. You know, sometimes you do have to do that. You know? Yeah, so, you do. Absolutely. You know. And if you could do it, if, I mean, it, the fact, the issue is, or in the end, there are no rules in writing. There are, I mean, there's sensible stuff. There's stuff that works 90% of the time and it's yeah. worth knowing what it is, but there aren't any rules. No, there's one yeah. like, look, there are, there are, there are some conventions of language that, you would do well to pay attention to. Yes, yes. Funny to communicate to a reader. Yeah. But other than that, the one rule is this: make sure it works. If it doesn't work, then it's a disaster. Yeah, is, Whatever it's do, make sure it works. That's right. That's right. And and the other thing that I was like nodding vigorously to that you said, well, when you were talking about you work, you talked about working hard and luck. And I think I think luck comes to people who work hard. Yes, it's not that they can actually do it; they can't make literally make the thing happen. But it's just it just is more likely to come their way if they if they stay focused and keep disciplined and yeah. keep on it. Yes, and that is that saying: the luck favors the prepared mind. Yeah, um, yeah I, that's, that's it and it's so true. It is true, and it's true as true for writers as anything. So, like, if you get massively famous and you write sell loads of books, would you one day do want to do that full time, or is your do you want to stay? Is, there, is your calling to be a doctor? It would always be part time. I'm never going to give up being a doctor. They have they'd have to drag me out of my clinic dead or dying yeah. or something. You know, so like I would I would cut down my days maybe to three days a week or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it will always be part time for me. Yeah, that's you know, interesting. But, yeah, yeah. But the way you know, because it just you know they're just different aspects to me, and that is one of the aspects. And I'm not going to give it up for anything. No. Um, and the writing thing, what I found is it's probably best not to focus on, I guess, how famous or how many books you sell to, and that keeps you grounded. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, that kind of keeps you grounded. What I try to focus on is the craft itself. Cause again, there's a the thing most people, I don't know. People tend to think or oh, craft means it affects your artistic nature. And I think that's really nonsense. I think craft is very, very important. I think, you know, like understanding why something works, why do people mm. do things? particular way you know understanding points of view understanding you know what it is voice all of those things it's extremely important and it's not a thing that i i don't take it for granted at all i no. still try to hone myself and i still try to listen to writing workshops and listen to writing podcasts and i talk to other writers how do they do things why do they do things in different ways though i keep doing those things because it's the only way to keep your, your edge 
Otherwise, you get complacent and you start writing exactly the same thing. And that's not something I want to happen to me. No, no. You have to still have to engage with life. If, you, you yeah. know, if you're not, then your writing becomes empty. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah. At least that's what I think. I don't know. That's what I think. I think people should still engage with life and engage with all the things around you in some other way that is not just, okay, I am now going to the mall to explore this aspect of people so I can put it in my writing. You know, you should just engage with people normally. And then, you know, then it comes through when you write. Everything affects everything else. Mm. So being a writer actually makes me a better doctor because it makes me better able to understand people's narratives. Mm. You know, why are they there and why and why and why? So it makes it makes people's problems clearer to me because I have to focus on the protagonist's problem and be very clear about it it bleeds into my job as well. So I need, it makes me ask more probing questions so I can understand mm. problem better. Well, you I'm know, sure so that one, works both ways. I'm uh, sure being a doctor yeah. makes you a better writer as well. Yes, you know, it does. It works both ways, yeah. People, people come and tell you the most amazing stories, I'm sure, all day. You, know. you can't use any of them. <laughs> that's, one, <laughs> that's one of the reasons I don't write. Um, that's why I always, probably always will write fantastical fiction because yeah. I can't use the stories I'm no, told. No, that, You know, so things have to be transformed to, to such a degree that they are unrecognisable. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, of course. Now, I, I get the impression, and we've touched on this slightly with what you were saying, that that you are always writing whatever situation you're in and that, that you are, whether that's out of habit or discipline or a mixture of both, that actually you've, you've always got your notebook. You're always writing something. Is, is that correct? Do you, do you, is that how you work it's, as a writer? You're writing that it's a combination of discipline and habit. I was doing that before I even understood matters of discipline and deliberate practice and trying to get, get the bad writing out so that you can get to the good writing. Mm. It was more... For me, it's more like, well, if I'm writing about something, I'm actually excited about what I'm writing about. If I'm, if, if a thing doesn't excite me and interest me, I don't bother writing it. I don't force myself no. to write things. And I think that I, I may even have offended people who have come to me saying, well, look, we have this themed anthology. Can you write a story for us? And I'll say, well, no, because <laughs> my unless, unless coincidentally it's something that I am interested in. Yeah, yeah. Speaking, I'll, I'll usually say no. I'm not. I don't. I don't let anybody set the themes of what I want to write. I do it myself. Um, and usually, what that comes with a pressure to write, you know, to get what I'm thinking down. You know, it is a hmm. thing that I'm interested in, so I need to get it down. And unfortunately, or fortunately, it doesn't always tell me when it's going to happen. It does happen every day, but I don't know when every day it's going to happen. So I carry the notebook around with me. The discipline part of it is that I tend to wake up early and write every morning. But in the daytime, you know, when there are gaps, I write as well. Mm. When when there are gaps in what I'm doing or if I'm doing something and I, you know, and I don't have a contribution to that thing, then I'll, I'll start writing. I'll start scribbling something down. You know, so, yes, I do. I, I write every day and I write when I write. I have the discipline plus the habit. Yeah. So it's a it's a. They're a virtuous pair, aren't they? But it's good to have the, have the two of them. Yeah. So I want to talk to you a little bit now about your work and uh, particularly to talk about the murders of Molly Southbourne and, and Rosewater. So you won the Anoma Award for Rosewater in 2017 and another yeah. one in 2018 for your, for the novella, The Murders of Molly Southbourne. So, yeah. and these, these are awards that are given to Africans by Africans. That's, that's how it presents itself. I think these particular works give us a real insight into your work and into also African speculative fiction. Would, first of all, would you agree with that? It is. I, I think you're right in that 
okay, so both of these books represent both of the, the major aspects to me, both of the halves that make me up, I suppose. Because, again, I'm not what you would call biracial or anything like that. But my background, you know, I am English by birth and by background. And I also, you know, I'm also Yoruba, you know. So yes. those two things contributed to the person that I am right now. I'm kind of a fusion of both. And so bo- I am kind of, so I'm loyal to both of those cultures, but both of those cultures will come out of me. Yes, so, yes. So, so while you have something like Rosewater, which is Rosewater is an African novel, like written by an African, you know, about you know an African cast. Yes. The Murders of Molly Southbourne is an English book. It's a book about England and the countryside, mm. um, even though it kind of, you know, it, it, it's it is sort of inspired by Frankenstein. It is a lot of it is set in an English farmhouse. It, that's really what it is. You know, it's. Mm. It that's the English side of me. I, I, it, it's let's 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 talk about that. Let's talk about the novella then for for a moment. Yeah. And although there is this kind of talk of of Africa and Africa and influence, the the murders of Molly Southbourne is an incredibly English story. I think it has a very it has a very English aesthetic. Even it is down, even down to that. Like if you look at the cover, there is. I mean, I I don't know whether. I can't believe this is just an accent. There is that hint of the St. George's it's Cross. It's St. George's Cross. Yeah, it is a St. George's Cross. It's, that's it's what just, it is. It's it's there. And it, it I, I found myself looking at the cover and knowing that that was the case without knowing it, knowing that that, not recognising it. And it was only after I'd seen it five, six, seven times, I thought, that's what that's that's what it is that I'm looking at. And I kind of half knew it. See, that, see a very, a very, very pale girl. Yes. You see, it's a pale girl with a cruciate you know blood smear mm. yeah and uh, uh, people are intrigued they can they should they should go and look find the novella look you know get by the novella and, and they can see the cover as well there is a sense i think with with that yes as you say there is there is a kind of hint of frankenstein to it there is the, uh, a hint of some of the kind of flavors of the fantastic in it but it has a it has this hugely english aesthetic doesn't it and what what, what was it that you think attracted you not just to the kind of the englishness in it, but there's also a kind of countryside, almost a pastoral theme running through that book. Would, would, you, would you agree with that? What was, what was your inspiration for that? Um, so even though, okay, so I, yeah, I was born and grew up in London, but I spent a lot of time in Somerset. Okay. You, you know, um, we had, we had kind of like a nanny in Somerset. So my sister, my brother, and I, we used to spend a lot of time in Somerset playing basically in a farm because that's where, that's where they had. Yeah, it was, yeah. you know, so we kind of go there and we get up to all kinds of mischief in a farm. So there was that. There was this, I, I don't know, I guess a sense of loss of that kind of thing because, mm. you know, I've lived in cities. I've lived in cities pretty much almost continuously since then. Um, there was also the idea that okay look i wanted to write a book that it could it could be anywhere it could be set anywhere in the uk you know anywhere at all mm. it could be a farm in it could be a farm in you know in glasgow it could be in wales it could be in it could be in ireland mm. you know it could be anywhere in the uk and it would be it would still be you know it would still be recognizable and I also because i you know i'm terribly terribly addicted to frankenstein so i wanted some kind of I guess homage to to Mary Shelley. Yes, yeah. So I wanted some of that. In there. I wanted some of that that kind of gothic farmhouse horror, that rural horror that you get 
all right, that that English writers do quite well. Yeah, you know that yeah. I've never, you know I've never really been able to capture it, but there's that there's that English horror that is in the countryside and it's in this there's isolation, but there's also people gathered together at the same time, you know, um, and there's a bleakness at the same time. There is love, you know. That is really what I was. That's what I was trying to do. Yeah. But yeah. I'm not, you're not. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I planned all of that out. You know, all of this that I'm telling you is all only became only became known to me in retrospect when I was writing the first draft. It, honestly, it came out like white heat. I really just started from the beginning and kept on writing all yeah. the way to the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just it came out in a white. It, it was just one of those things that has actually never happened to me. But it, you know, people say it happens to them sometimes. Um, I just wrote the whole thing out and I was supposed to be writing something else, but it just kind of insisted. <laughs> so I just yeah. did it. And yeah. I'm usually quite disciplined about this kind of thing. Usually I write things in sequence. I write what I want to write. If a new idea comes, I jot it down, but I ignore yeah. it after. As you after said that earlier. Yeah. 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 Usually it's one thing at a time. This jumps the queue and there was just no way of stopping it. So I just said, fine. Okay. What's come out? Let it, let it. So I did. So that's how I wrote it. And it was only, it was when I was revising it later that I was, now finding meaning in it and now finding, you know, solutions to things and realizing, yeah. okay, you know, this part's Frankenstein and this part's from Hammer House of Horror. And, you know, this is English countryside. This is yeah. nostalgia for your times yeah. in Somerset. That, you know, all that then kind of, it came out that way. And that, I mean, there's a, there's a whole bunch of things that come to mind just from what you've said there. I was thinking, as you were talking, I was thinking British horror uh, or English horror does have, that does seem to be bound up with, with the countryside. I was thinking of um, Sherlock Holmes, the Hound of the Baskervilles and that kind of yes. you know, the, the horror in that, in, in a rural setting, as you say, people are gathered and it's isolated, but they are together. There's relationship there. Um, and also when you were saying how you just wrote this in a kind of white heat, I, 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 I think that any writer who is, is kind of, you know, the, the muse strikes, let's say they'll write stuff yeah. and they're conscious of some of it, but there's also a kind of subconscious, there are themes that come out in in the subconscious, which, with editing and with reflection, they surface. You can see you can see what, what was coming. And I think that I don't know whether you'd agree. I think that's probably what's happened with you, with this particular novella. Yeah, and, and another thing about another thing about British horror is this one that that gathering together thing can also be isolating. Mm. Um, I think that if you remember the film An American Werewolf in London, mm. especially the beginning. I mean. I love how that film turned really surreal as it moved on, <laughs> as it got, but I also love the beginning. There was something about the beginning that was very, very British in terms of the horror. Yes. It was very British. More like you come into this place and the people are just, they're insular. They don't want to know you. They don't actually care who you are. They they have that camaraderie. You know, they, they are themselves. They have their own families. They've got their pub and they know what they're doing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If you are a stranger, it can be very isolating for a stranger. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what you it won't realize, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And what you won't realize is that yeah. But what you don't realize is that they are actually trying to help you. <laughs> you know, yeah. this is yes. the thing. Yes. This is a it's a stranger thing, you know. Um, and perspective matters a lot in that. So, if you look at things like the original Wicker Man, all right. It's what happens with the best kind of British horrors where they try to, a strange person comes to that rural community and is completely isolated and 
basically, you know, like he would come out, ignores all the warning signs and just kind of persists and persists and persists until finally realizes that he's doomed. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's all strange. It's all weird. And if, you know, the clues were there from the start. And so that's, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, it's all those long uh, afternoons of reading all kinds of books and everything. Yeah. Kind of chaos. And of course, obsessively rereading Shelley all the time doesn't help. Just thinking about this now and just kicking around these themes, I, I, it, it, it seems to me it's another expression of the kind of us and the other as well going yes. on. That, that you, you, as you say, you walk into the pub, you are from, you're down from the city and they do want to help yes. you, but you are the other. Uh, and, yes. and it's exploring that, all of that tension. It's, it's a rich vein, isn't it? For, for this it kind is. of. And they're also. And the thing, the other part of it is that they're also possibly as nervous about you as you are about yeah. them because they're like, well, we don't want to seem stupid to him or her. You know, this strange person that's come from this place, we don't we don't want to look stupid. No, no. You know, maybe you're going to make, we don't want you to make fun of our ways, you know. So, you know, there's all, there are all kinds of things that are all that, that are. It's all there. all kinds it? of forces <laughs> working. Yes. Yeah. Um, now, one of the one, one of the things I wanted to, to also ask you about uh, as a general principle but thinking about it specifically with with that novella although it is fantastic in all senses of the word it retains that classic terrible fascinating credibility and it seems to me that that if you're if you're trying to write horror perhaps or dark fantasy that it you have to kind of stop it from from falling into farce that there is all, yeah. there's that element of this is credible. It's serious. The, the people who take it seriously. So, how do how do you do that? How do you how do you stop a, a, a fantastic work from degenerating into farce? Well, I take I, I take the advice of um, Haruki Murakami. So Har- Haruki Murakami wrote a book called IQ eighty four, and in it he said, well, in it a writer I think is talking about this precise thing about writing about the fantastic or mm. horror or whatever. And he said, if you're going to do that, that you have to take every other detail that is not fantastical and not horror, not horrific and, and not supernatural. Mm. And you have to make those details extremely well done. That is the agreement you tend to have with the reader. If everything surrounding the fantastical is grounded in reality and is very well described, then yeah. the reader will yeah. come with you and accept when you're talking about a man turning into a wolf. The reader will accept it because you have described the bookshelf well. Yeah. And yeah. that way described the sense, you know, the feeling of a cold of a cold sweat or someone taking the diabetes medication. Yes. When all yeah. you know, if if all the other things, if they reflect well with the lives of the people who read whatever story you are telling, then when you tell them that there is an elder god who was released and is somewhere loose in the woods, wearing some kind of antler hat or whatever, um, they will accept that from you. They're accepting it because of the fumes, because a car that, maybe a car that's not been well serviced, because the fumes cause them to choke, because it's an experience that people have had, then they think they're in a real environment. So everything that real then becomes more acceptable so there there is a kind of psychological journey that you're guiding the reader on aren't you i suppose if you if you say look here are some very real things and you know they're real because you've been there 
And therefore, yes. you can connect with this thing that, you know, the reach beyond the reality into the guy with the antlers or whatever it is. Exactly. Um, it is similar to what, um, you know, similar to what um, Stephen King wrote about in Dance Macabre, where he said that the problem of the horror writer is when you reveal the guy in the suit. It's similar to that. You know, so you can keep on winding up the tension until you have to reveal the actual monster. Yes. And then when, when the audience, because the monster is always going to be more horrible in the audience's imagination. When you reveal the monster, it's never going to be as scary. So he talks about how you have to make it believable so that at that point, people just accept it. Interesting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's fascinating stuff. It's darker fantasy and horror is not is not an aspect of 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 this kind of cluster of themes that i i normally explore very much but it's a it's fascinating how how there's there is a real psychology to presenting this kind of work well isn't there i think there is yes and i think at least for me because i had no i had no it wasn't an intentional thing so I didn't set out to be frightening or to scare anybody i just set out to tell a story mm. I, so i got you know, so I explored the idea to every direction I mm. could. I wasn't consciously saying I'm going to make this a very scary or creepy or, you know, I was not aiming for the emotion. I was only aiming at exploring the idea in the lives of human mm. beings. And it turned mm. out to be scary. Um, initially, I didn't even think it was going to be horrific. I thought I was writing a science fiction novella. Um, in fact, the structure of it was slightly different when you know, when I'd done the first draft, yeah. it was the editor, the editor pointed out that, look, if you de-emphasize the science a little bit, the horror actually comes out more. This seems more like this. It seems more like the natural genre of what you've written here. And I yes. agreed with it. Yeah. So when I, when I, I, I backgrounded the, the science and turned it more into just a story about Molly and her strange condition, it, it then became more of a horrific experience. And as you say, you didn't go out to write a scary story. You don't tell us it's scary at all. You just show us the story. And, and that that gives it an authenticity, I think, and a, and a power. And maybe, you know, I, I think it's brilliant. I think it, it works really well for that. So I want to just move on now to talk about Rosewater then, which I think is more of it's more of a kind of science fiction first contact novel. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about Rosewater in, in your own words, just, just to, to start us off. Um, Rosewater is about the slowest, most subtle alien invasion that you've ever heard of. <laughs> yeah. um, it is the very definition of the long game. So the aliens are playing a very, very long game in such a way that most humans would not be aware that we are facing extinction. The idea was to present it from one person's perspective mm. So that you could slowly become aware of this world around the person and have some mounting horror towards the end that, hang on, this is an alien invasion. Mm. You know, it, it, it doesn't hit you until probably about halfway that this is actually, this is an invasion. This is mm. just as much of an invasion as if there was an armada of spaceships in the sky, you know, shooting us with rays. Yeah, yeah. But it's quiet. It's quiet. It's centuries, you know, centuries of not a lot happening and possibly centuries more of not a lot happening. Uh, but one day, you know, 
the idea is one day we wake up and realize that we don't we don't own the planet anymore. So for all the slowness of it, it feels like an uncomfortable novel. That was the phrase that that came to my mind. It not, in the sense that there is always this undercurrent of threat there. It's not very. It's not yes. obvious. It's not clear. It's not. It's not War of the Worlds or anything like that. But it's, there's always that sort of threat, and I, and in fact, there is there is within it. I think uh, a, 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 that permeates it, weaves through it. The sort of the threat, perhaps a threat from the aliens, the threat as well from humans to, towards other humans. There's there's the the kind of sense yes. of violence promised or or hinted at throughout the whole thing. That is correct. So I wanted to show the threat of the aliens without actually showing the aliens at all, without mm. talking about the aliens. I wanted there to be a sense of danger and not knowing. And that's one of the reasons that I picked the first person, um, you, you know, point of view of telling yes. the story. Yeah. Because you're telling, a, a, you know, first person, you will not know everything. And that is a problem because you have a sense of not, the, the idea of not knowing actually somehow brings about a kind of subliminal threat. Like, I don't know everything that's going on here. Or what the hell is going on here? What do I know? What do I not, what do I not know? And the idea that, one, you don't even know what's dangerous, but you know that yeah. something is dangerous because you feel it creeping underneath somewhere, but you don't know what, all right? And you don't even know the rules of the game. Like, look, if you see a flying saucer, you know the rules of the game. You, <laughs> you, call, you know, yeah, you call the army and then they use whatever countermeasures are there. You know, there's yeah. already a script for that. There's a script for flying saucers. There is no script for this. And in fact, your elected officials might be complicit. Yeah, yeah. You know, may have looked at everything and decided, hang on, okay, we don't know what's going on here, but we know that these guys can do it. So we'll just kind of, we'll kind of tick along and hold on to power until they take over. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, like the idea that America did not even engage and just disappeared, all right, is actually one of the sources of threat. Because if you think about the world today, America is the most well-armed nation on the planet. And I may be wrong about this. Well, I, I, I've heard somewhere that they have they have more arms than the next 26 countries put together. But the point is this. If, if you think about the world now and you think, okay, if aliens landed today, we would look to America to decide what to do because mm. they're the ones who, they are the, they're, you know, if you take it in a very primitive way, they're our fathers with the big stick. So a snake yeah. has appeared in the, so they're the ones who are supposed to take the big stick and hit the snake. Yes. Um, but America just goes dark. You know, a lot of people don't actually notice it or they don't realize it, but America being absent from it makes them feel threatened because that's the country that they expect from, because readers, okay, just going back a little bit, readers are trained how to read science fiction. And one of the ways that readers are trained um, about alien invasions is to know that America is going to respond if, yeah, if it yeah. is long. So the absence of America, especially in people who've read um, speculative fiction before reading Rosewater, adds a level of threat that they are not. They, they don't even know why it's threatening. It's threatening because America isn't there. It's threatening because our father isn't there with a stick to kill the snake. Mm. Mm. But you know, you you don't. You know, it's not overt. You know, I mean, it's overt that America is not available, but they don't. People don't realize why it's making them uncomfortable. It's making them uncomfortable because the person that they thought would deal with the threat is not there. Mm. So, not. so you're reading the book and you've got this. Your subconscious is telling you, "Hang on," but your father isn't there. Your mother is. None of your parents are there to help you. I, yeah. you are at your cast drift. Yeah. You know, and I deliberately do not say what the rules are, and I do not say anything that happens in America. Um, I just leave everything mm. like that. Mm. So you're kind of drifting along with one in one character's mind, 
drifting along. Yeah. And he's not entirely reliable either. No, he's, and, you know, he's... <laughs> and he's not he's not relatable. He's not reliable. He's not relatable. You know, he is theoretically the worst person to tell you the story. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That you've talked a little bit about America is conspicuous by its absence. But you, you kind of in that in that novel, it's interesting. You you mention that, but it's not a big deal, is it? It's not a it's not a thing you come back to again and again. It's just, it's almost like it seasons the whole story. It's just there. It's just yes. there's, and then it's in the back of the reader's mind. It's just a bit of unease. The other thing that in it that I found wonderfully unsettling was that, in fact, some of the people welcome the aliens. Uh, in fact, a load of people are attracted. They're attracted to the aliens coming it's not the kind of as you say it's not um flying saucers in the sky and we're all worried actually loads of yeah. people are, are really attracted to it and there's something unnerving about that i think isn't there well well yes but that is that is what would happen you never get you will never get a universal reaction from human beings to anything no. at all no fair enough and especially if it comes bearing gifts if any 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 entity or group that comes bearing gifts will always get a very special reaction. I think about it in terms of the black people I see in Trump rallies. All right, if you look yeah. at Trump rallies, he's got black people conspicuously peppered into the audience, you know. And I think of it in different ways. Were they paid to be there? Why are they there exactly? And what is their reason? There will always be such people. I don't know. It is a theme that I developed a bit more as the you know as book two and book three go along. Mm. But there will always be such people, especially if they haven't revealed their claws. Yeah. You know, so if there only if there is only an apparent benefit to being close to this person or these these groups, then yes, they will attract people. And I think that ratchets up the tension. Really, I guess uh, if if. If the the bad guy, let's say, if we all, if the bad guy comes in and we just, we're all scared, that isn't as yeah. much of, that doesn't kind of crank it up as much as if actually some people are drawn in. Some people are drawn in by it and some people think this is a good thing. That That's much, that's a much more interesting story, I think. Even at the end of the book, when Kara himself then realises that even the one that he thought was was his friend saw him as some kind of pet yeah you know yeah for him it was you know it was a very big moment for him to realize that hang on you know i thought we were buddies i thought we were equals whereas you see me as some kind of lesser being you know it, it, it there, there there is a lot if if you know if a person had time to unpack what that actually meant you know the idea, you know, a lot of what I'm talking about in this book, there are lots of ideas about belonging, about otherness, about race, yes, about yeah. sexuality, about human, about, you know, about humanity. A lot of that, that's, and there's no point having an alien narrative if you're not going to explore what it means to be human. Yeah, yeah. Because that's really what it is. That's, you know, narratives about aliens are really narratives about humans. It's about trying to find out what makes a human and what are the differences between us and what makes us what makes us emphasize those differences and how do we get along? You know, that's what alien mm. narratives you know, mm. really should be about. Yeah, I, I, I suppose the presence of the alien should make us question who we are. It should make yes. us look back on ourselves. Uh, and, and, and I guess I, I hadn't thought about those kind of uh, alien narratives in that sense. But if, if we've recognized the alien, 
that means we must think we are different. So how are we different? What is it that makes us who we are? And all of those, that, that, that's, a, that's rich ground to kind of, or that's a rich vein to mine, isn't it, in terms of themes and ideas and, and the psychology of it. Exactly. And one more thing is that, is there, a, you know, it should then make us think back about ourselves. These differences that we seem to think matter a lot, do they really matter that much? That's, that's the thing. We know it doesn't matter DNA-wise, but the rest of it, does it, you know, how much does it matter that this person decides yeah. to wear a trail or this person wears a filler? So what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that, I mean, personally, I'd find that a really appealing theme to explore in, in, yeah. in, in, in the sense of experiencing something which makes you think, actually, it doesn't matter if that person wears what they wear, um, eats what they do, do what they do. It, yeah. and, uh, or even like who cares what color they are who cares what they it, it, it really doesn't matter it, yeah it's that's a that's a thing I, I i would enjoy seeing more of those that kind of dynamic explored in literature i have to say so i just want to talk about a, a slightly more technical issue with the book in terms in in that book you you the story takes place over two time periods so yes. how did you manage that aspect? What were, what were the things that you had in mind when, we, when you were dealing with that, that aspect of the work? I, start, I had a false start where I had to discard 50,000 words of the book. I started it from the wrong point of view. And then I realized, okay, fine. I, when I realized that it should be one person's point of view. In fact, in the original draft, Caro didn't even exist at all. <laughs> um, really? Yeah, because it, it was told from a different person's perspective who was okay. on a different part of the country. So I was telling it, I was writing it, and it was flowing, but then it it kind of died on the page. It just I was continuing, but it just wasn't alive. So I stopped myself. I said, okay, fine. Does that mean the idea is wrong, or is the point of view wrong? And then I experimented a little bit. I realized, okay, the point of view is wrong. There needs to be a character that it was missing a character. Mm. And then I realized that actually this character that's missing from it would be able to tell pretty much the entire story. And I was like, okay, it means that it needs to be first person. But part of the problem was, or part of the problem of telling a first person story is you have to be in one person's head for the whole of the book. Yes, yeah. So I felt that, well, maybe I might get bored just telling one story in one person's voice all the way through. So instead, I broke the story pretty much in half and told the story of him when he was young and him when he was old. Yes. Because... Because there's been a change, it's like having two characters. It's a cheat. It's like having two different characters, but saying it's one person. You see, that's so you're, you're really trying to have the best was. of both worlds almost here, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I haven't even told you the rest of it. You see, by having by one by doing that, it gave me two characters. But by making him a telepath, I could enter the brains of anybody I wanted to. <laughs> yes. So it was a way. You know, so it's a kind. It's kind of omniscient hidden in first person yeah yeah because you can know more you can cheat you can cheat the first person narrative if your if your character is a psychic (laughs) you know because he can know things that a first person wouldn't ordinarily know unless they were told you know so that's you know it was a way of getting around the yeah i know i see what you're saying yeah yeah although uh it wouldn't be a thing that lots of other people can then copy. It's kind of, you, you did it first sort of thing. So you, <laughs> you, own, you own that, you own that trick now. Um, now one of the things I, I've noticed in your work, and I, I'd be interested to hear whether you agree with this or not, is that uh, the characters are 
are happy to talk about the world of physical realities. Um, so even down to, you know, the, and I think this is, I think this is an African sentiment, not a Western sentiment. So what is, what is the human body like? What are bodily functions like? What, yeah. what is the earth like? And I mean, would you agree with that? Is that something that really us Westerners, let's say, should learn something about? Actually, no, because all of us as humans, we already, we deal with our bodies and we deal with it. We deal with the earth and the, and the environment around us. The problem is that the difference in the West is that we have relegated these conversations to specific realms. So we say, well, you don't talk about this in public, yeah. but you can talk about it in scientific um discourse or when you are teaching a child so you can talk a lot about poop and urine if you're talking to a child and trying to potty train the person but we say words like oh can i swear is yeah 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 so when we say words like shit it's supposed to be oh you can't say shit because you just don't talk about waste products you don't talk about elimination um and you definitely don't talk about having a period or menstruation that's just not done well actually there's nothing you know i actually feel that it's us losing contact with something that we all have to face we're in our bodies so we all have to face the elimination of waste we all have to yeah. face it yeah. is we want to approach sex sweat you know urine you know blood all of the body fluids that we have this is our life right and we have somehow built silos around it. we've built ice you know we've built chambers around it so that we don't have to encounter yeah. those things yeah but those yeah. things actually make us alive. And that's the way, that is the reason why people will respond to stories that treat them as just parts of life. So when Rosewater was being edited, in particular America, you know, there was this thing that, well, why is this here? I'm like, because people do this. That's why it's there. It's very similar to people. This is what people do who, who are human beings. You know, and then they're like, yeah, but why is it there? It might alienate people. I'm like, well, uh, <laughs> I I don't buy that people get alienated by it. I, I think people will would want to say in public that they're alienated by it, but that they won't actually be alienated by it. Because honestly, you know, I don't know if you remember, I don't know if you ever watched Spitting Image, but there's a song in Spitting Image you know, that says everyone goes to the toilet, <laughs> even Madonna and Prince. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Look, it's true, okay, and that's that's the thing. So nobody, I don't think anybody is really going to be alienated by it, but they will perform alienation if confronted by it in public. Yeah, because it doesn't belong in the public realm or the it doesn't belong in public discourse according to the rules we have set up for society. Um, and I think the more those and you know it, it has changed in the, you know in twenty years, thirty years, it's, it's different now. There are more yes. things you hear on Radio Four that. 30 years ago, you would never, you would oh, never true. have seen anything like this. You know, um, I even, I even, I, I get shocked when I hear things on Radio 4. And not because the words shock me, but because I've never heard this on Radio 4. <laughs> you know, I'm like, wow, you know. It's it's now it, acceptable <laughs> if it's on Radio 4, I guess. I, I, I'd like to think, I'd like to think that it's them catching up with research on things. You know, yeah. so there's like, hear that, okay, look, Actually, swear words, all of that stuff, none of it is harmful to children or to anybody, actually. Yeah, I, I'd be really interested, coming back to writing, in hearing your perspective on the issue of writing the other. Because I've talked to lots of people about this. Um, and the people I the people I think 
I respect most are, are kind of grappling with the issue of authentically presenting characters in their work who are outside of their own experience and the process of doing that in a in a, in a proper and authentic way. So, do, do you? What are your thoughts on that sort of thing? Okay, so here's the thing. So, first of all, authenticity is a problem. It's problematic. It's a problematic phrase. Okay. In and of its, who's an authentic anything? Who's an authentic Englishman? Who's an authentic Scot? That is problematic because then you'd have to say, okay, you'd have to take all of the characteristics and then kind of boil them down to someone who contains the essential Scotness. Yeah. A person that you never, ever meet because the person doesn't exist. Most of us take bits and pieces from different parts and then just kind of exist in that way. So you might find a person who has, for example, you know, a Glaswegian accent, but might not have the stereotypical things you might believe about them. All right. Yes. Yes. But it doesn't, you know, does that make, is he therefore not a Scot? No. So the problem is in deciding what is authentic, because in order to, in order to write something that you deem to be authentic, you have to say, okay, this is the authentic thing. So that's one, because the authentic thing doesn't exist. If you are writing characters and not statistical norms, they're never going to match up to any particular stereotype because they are characters and not, yeah. not yeah. statistical, you know, not things that are formed from statistics saying, okay, pretty much everybody in, I don't know, pretty much everybody in Newcastle wears this or supports yeah. Newcastle, for example. But there are people in Newcastle who don't support Newcastle. Does that make them any less from there? You see, so you know, the essential, the quintessence of a person you can't ever define it. It's not possible to do that. So that's one. Two, I think that every writer should write whatever the hell they want to. So this idea that certain people can't write certain people, which is an idea I've seen bandied about, yeah, is yeah. to me is utter nonsense. You know, it, it is yeah. utter nonsense. I actually think anybody, anybody should write about whatever and whoever they want to write about. I don't think any topic is off limits for anybody who is from any part of the world. No, I, um, that's fair enough. I agree with. It. I, I guess, I guess by, and I can accept that the word authentic or authentically is problematic. I I think when, like certainly when people talk to me about this, what they, I think what they're saying is that they don't want to just be lazy and pick a stereotype. So if they want to write about somebody in a different culture, they don't just kind of do. 30 seconds of looking on Wikipedia and decide they know everything about that culture. That's, that's an extreme example of well, it. That's, that's, that won't do, really. Yeah, well, here's the thing. This, it brings me to the third thing I'll, you mm. know, the third thing I'm going to say about it. If you write about someone who is outside your culture, be ready to be criticised for it, right? Regard, you know, because there is no way you cannot understand the lived experience of another human being. You don't even understand the lived experience of another human being in your own culture. You don't even know that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the moment you step outside your lived experience, you are going to make mistakes and you're going to alienate some people. You have to have peace with that. The mistake that most people make is they they write about another culture and then they expect to be congratulated for it. And that's bullshit. <laughs> Look, you're not yeah. doing anybody a favor by writing about another culture, okay? It is you as the writer who have done it. You've chosen to do it. So you've done it for good and for evil. So for good, if you get it, if you get it right and people find recognizable parts of themselves in the character, then hey, you know, well done you. Yeah. And then if you've done a piss poor job, 
then they're going to make fun of you. Then they're going to come for you. And you have to accept that because you're the one who decided to write outside your culture or outside your experience. That's your burden. You decided to do it. So you have to take the lumps if they come yeah. and not complain about it. You really can't complain about it. And that's, you know, and that's where I find people, you know, because this, again, like you said, this comes up quite a bit. I find people amazing. I'm like, look, what did you think would happen when you decided to write about someone else? You can't know another human being. So the moment you step out, you're taking a risk, you're doing a lot of work, and you really should put in the work. Um, and of course, there is, you know, you really, the idea of a sensitivity reader was fine until they started calling them sensitivity readers before the name, before it was a named thing. Yes. Yes. It was a normal thing to do. It was called research. You would basically, okay, look, I've written about a woman character. I definitely need some women to read this to tell yes. me, look, Hey, what do you think? <laughs> as long when it wasn't called sensitivity readers, it was fine. The moment someone slapped the label on it, then it became, Oh God, I, I, I can't write about a culture outside my own because you know, sensitivity readers. And it became about identity politics and all that. It became mixed up in, you know, all kinds of things that are plaguing, I guess the writing community right now, if yeah, I can use yeah. you know, that generalization. And that's not the point. The point is, look, if you do it, you're going to get it wrong. And some people are going to come for you for that. Be ready to accept that. Listen and be quiet when a person from the group you've written tells you you've made a mistake, just be quiet and say, okay, well, obviously got that wrong. Oops, bad me or my bad or whatever. Um, because you can't know you weren't there. You know, if I decide to write about Texas, all right, I expect tons of Texans to come for me because I don't live there. I what, what the hell do I know about Texas other than what I've seen on yeah, television, which is yeah. likely, you know, more likely to be a stereotype. What the hell do I know? Maybe people do go around in six and eight gallon hats. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. I don't know. I've only seen it on TV. All right. I think I've been to Texas once when I was a child. And all I can remember is a traffic cop, you know, but I, you know, if I write about Texas, I will be literally expecting someone, you know, to, um, to come for me for doing that. I mean, okay. Like a, a few days ago, someone so there was some flooding in Venice recently, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, someone posted a picture of cars, it, you know, driving through flood water, and you know, said it was a picture of um, said it was a picture of Venice and everything. So someone came up and said, "Ha ha 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 ha! There aren't any roads in Venice." So I said, "Dude, I've been to Venice like four times. Okay, there are roads there. Like, yes, there are canals. I mean, it's mostly canals and stuff, but there are also roads. There's a train station." right there are buses you you know you 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 drive into venice okay <laughs> you know? and he was like no you didn't you know he's like yeah you, you've never been to venice you're faking blah 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 so I, and immediately i just i stopped the conversation because obviously yeah. this person this is lived experience you're arguing with a person who's been there okay i'm not i didn't use google earth i was actually there I've been, <laughs> you know i came out of the train station okay i've been there by bus i've driven there so for someone to then start arguing, obviously the person doesn't know what they're talking about. You know, it, it is kind of that kind of thing. All right. You can't argue with lived experience. So if you've written about someone outside your own particular experience, be prepared to listen and be prepared to take lumps because there will be lumps. Mm. But that's part of the whole thing. You know, that's 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 just the way of it. That's the way of, you know, writing and writing the other, like you said. You know, I, when, you know, okay, go on. So I was, I was only going to say, it's just a, 
agree with what you're saying there. I it, it just for me, I think it, it it leads me to the question, which is, is there is there though a right attitude to take? Well, all right, let's rather let's make a statement rather than a question. I think there is a right attitude to take to this, and somewhere in amongst it is is respect. Um, yeah. So there is a there is a mindset to bring to that debate. I agree with you. We should we should write about whoever we want to write, but let's approach it with respect. And that might and the word respect is a slippery word for a lot of people, and it means different things to different people. But that's that that's my own that's my own position on this. I think. Uh, you know, for goodness sake, approach approach the thing with respect. As you say, if somebody from that culture, take you know, gives you, give, you know, has a go at you about it, well, I think to learn from that. You know, learn. It's it's valuable. It's valuable. Exactly. And look, it used to be that in the realms of fiction or even non-fiction, like in anthropology and the like, all right, what a white person writes about the African was more acceptable than what the African writes about the African. Mm. You know, and I still remember, I remember once I sent, I sent a book to a publisher and the publisher says, um, okay, but we already have someone writing about Africa, you know, like, and that person was white, you know, and I'm like, well, <laughs> hey, you know, I'm sorry, but do you think there is only one perspective to this place? How many people do you have writing about London? Do you have only one person writing about yeah. London as well? Yeah. You know, um, so it, it's, it's, it's more like, look, if you want to step out of your experience, that's fine. So, for example, if you take books like the the number one ladies detective agency, yes, all right, yeah. Now that writes, you know, writes about Africa, but it writes about Africa from the perspective of a white middle class male or upper middle class male who has gone there and who is observing and writing. You know, it, it is not, <clears throat> excuse me, it is not Africa from the perspective of Africans. It is not. No. I read. I think I read the first two, and I was like, oh, yeah. This definitely was not written by an African. It was so obvious. You know, it was so obvious to me. But it was obvious to me because, again, this is a person writing about, you know, places that I've been to and places that mm. I experienced, so that I have people that I know what I know what life is like for people yes. there. None of that comes through, you know. And yeah. a lot of those books are praised about the humor and the positivity and the smiling nature and everything and it ignores the whole hiv aids thing which is devastating the whole place it just glosses over all of that like a tourist would yeah See, it kind of yeah. it kind of floats it floats above all of that and only notices the smiles and the and the friendliness and all of that which is certainly there but a lot of it can be directed towards tourists to make them come back and it misses what is also underneath that, which is all there's a bleakness underneath it. There's a there's mm. a rot, mm. you know, missing the you know the 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 rot and the decay that is also in those societies. If there was just some kind of balance, I'd probably like it a lot more. But there yeah. wasn't any, wasn't balanced, you know. And it then seems to me, the the whole series seemed to me like a kind of I don't know, like a kind of fever dream, more like you know, rather mm. than an rather than the actual reality and everything. Mm. And yes, it's an entertainment. It was just entertaining, I guess. That's what it was. Mm. Yeah. And perhaps as a, a kind of postscript to this debate, I personally would feel, and do feel quite wary about even using the word African, as if Africa was a kind of homogenous place, which it obviously and clearly is not. And even that would, would cause me quite a bit of concern. I, 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 I just find that, I mean, there is a continent of Africa, but actually, 
Africa is so many things that to try to encompass it in a particular description, I think would be would be quite dangerous, especially for somebody like me who's, who's not from that, not from any of those cultures. Yeah. Uh, how, I mean, how do you feel about the word African? Does that, does, I mean, you use <laughs> that word. Are you, are, you, are you content with it? Oh, no, no, not at all. I'm not content with <laughs> I'm not. I'm not even content with the word Nigeria. You know, I, 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 yeah, yeah. I, I largely, I largely detest labels that come from without. In other words, definitions that are placed upon you by yes. other people. Yeah. I detest those things. I, I really detest them. And like you said, Africa is a very vast continent with a vast number and variety of cultures in there. Mm. You know, of there are varying races, lots of varying races, which a lot of people don't seem to realize. Especially, you know, when people start talking about white Africans, because there are people who are white Africans. And so when you start to discuss with people, it just gets, you know, I said, look, there are white people, there are Arabs. They're not just black people in Africa. You know, there's a whole, there's a whole Asian contingent. The word is a reducing word. You know, it is a a shorthand for a lot of things. And most of those things are erroneous, you know, um, and it's not a thing that I like, but when you're discussing with people, you have to use, you have to first of all start with a language they can understand before you can bring them to understand complexities. You need to start from simplistic um, depictions of things to draw people in to to then explain complexities to them. Yeah, yeah. Because if you go in and say, well, if you have to to start from the shared language, even if you don't like the shared language. Yeah, that Um, makes sense, yeah, yeah. Because most of the time I don't even... Most of the time, I don't define myself by saying, "Okay, look, look I'm Nigerian or whatever." I say, "I say I'm Yoruba." Yes. Um, that's what I usually say, and then I can discuss with people. But it, it's you have to start from a shared language to get common ground, and then mm. continue the discourse mm. from there because it means different things. You know, you even the idea of otherness or being specific, the idea of blackness, for example, it means different things being in West Africa than it means being, say, in the UK yeah. or being in America. Yes. It means yeah. very different things. Yeah. It has very different connotations. You know, and the shortest, the, the short time I can tell you is that when you are in Africa, you don't know you're black. Let's put it that way. You know, it's one way of, it's one way of trying to explain it mm. to people mm. that only black when you're not in Africa. Yeah. You and know? I think I understand what, what you mean by that. And yeah. I as as well I think for me so if if I as a never mind writer as a as a person want yes. to engage with you in in a respectful way and by respectful on this occasion I mean make an effort make the make the in, you know do the intellectual work I could start with you say you're Yoruba now what does that mean so I I need to think about what that means because that that concept wouldn't be something that I would naturally understand coming exactly. in from my culture but actually i can make the effort to understand the social and cultural context for that some people build a bridge to me i can build a bridge to them as well by thinking about their context and their perspective and i think just certainly as writers but even as human beings that's something that we should try and do yes i agree Excellent. i couldn't add to that you know in any way i agree <laughs> so there's a bunch more things i could ask you but i'm gonna i'm gonna draw it to a close in a minute i think but there's a couple of quick things i want to ask you just just to finish in terms of writing, then, bringing it back to that, in your experience, what are the perhaps two or three really critical lessons you think writers need to learn and practice to do well with the craft? All right. The first thing is to 
know that the reader does not give a shit about you or your writing. So if you're writing anything at all, you're the one who cares about it. It is your job mm-hmm. to make the reader care about it. You don't, nobody's going to come to it loving it like you do. Nobody. So you have to make them care about it. And that is the work that you need to put into whatever it is you write. You have to make, when you can write the first draft in whatever way you like for yourself, but every subsequent draft, if you are going to work in any kind of fiction that is going to sell, even if you're going to give it to someone else to read, then you need to start thinking of the reader. Yeah. Asking the reader why, you know, asking yourself the question, why the hell should the reader care about this thing you've written? Why, how is this thing going to drag the reader away from their smartphone? How is it going to do that? <laughs> how interesting does it need to be? That's yeah. what you need to be asking yourself. Two, find yourself someone who is better than you and try and, and learn from that person. And that doesn't have to be an actual single person. It can just be reading and analyzing texts that you admire and trying to find out why you admire them and breaking those down as much as possible. All right. Mm-hmm. That often and again and again if you if you happen to be lucky to have a mentor that is right there fine then that's good you're lucky but i personally used the books meant you know i've used the books as mentors you know mm. books of people that i admire okay. writing i admire so use that find out why it works don't just read it for enjoyment read it to find out why do you think this particular sentence structure you know why does it draw you in what ha- you know basically spend a lot of your time reading actively not just reading because i know the, the cliche thing to say is well read a lot and write a lot but that doesn't do it it's not just reading it's basically actively reading reading to find out what this sentence structure does then spinning the words around and seeing if that has the same effect or not and asking yourself why the third thing is work very very hard and you will get lucky that's what i can say like you have to work hard consistently smartly and basically keep going as if you will not get any benefit from it. But you will get lucky. Luck is this thing that does come around. The trick is you have to be ready for it when it, when it arrives. And the only way you can be ready is by working consistently. It doesn't have to be fast. Even if all you can write in a day is a paragraph, that's fine too. Even if all you can do in a day is think of a paragraph, that's also okay. You don't have to write every day. Everybody's going to have their own style. Mm-hmm. There's no one style of doing this. Thinking about writing does qualify as writing. Because people get, people get all guilty saying things like, oh, I don't write every day. Nobody gives a shit if you write every day. They just give a shit if, if they pick up your writing and they enjoy it. That's what they give a shit about. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. worrying about whether you write every day or not is not important. Some of the, you know, some of the books that, a book like Catcher in the Rye, for example, that we are talking about decades after it was written, it's a very small book. It, you don't, it, it's not about the quantity of words. It's about the quality of the words. Mm. And it's about the moment in time when you produce those words. So there is no need to obsess about a word count every day. But if it works for you, do it by all means. Sure, but sure. there's no need to obsess over it. The important thing is consistently work, you know, work to your own effort. And the luck, because you do need some luck in this business, you do need some luck, but the luck will come around. You know? So those are, those are the three things that I can say are essential. Okay. Uh, so what should we expect from you in terms of writing next you 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 told us earlier on that you know pretty much what you're going to got to be writing for the next year and a half or whatever so what is going to be coming next from you okay so the next things are going to be the next two rosewater books okay. so you're going to get the rosewater insurrection in march 2019 mm-hmm. it's ready it's ready to go it's done dusted covers ready everything is just 
it's ready and raring to go. Um, and then in late um, 2019, you're going to get the Rosewater Redemption, which is the third book that sequence, which again is done. It's off to editors, so. Well, maybe I don't know. I've submitted it to the editor, so maybe maybe the editor will come back and say this is rubbish. Start again. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know I suspect you know, I've done, not. I've done, somehow. Yeah, I've done my bit for now. You know, yeah. so I've submitted. Yeah. So you know, that should come out late next year. Another thing that's coming out probably in the middle of next year is the survival of Molly Southbourne, which oh, is okay. the second Apple novella. Cool. You know, so that's that's sandwiched between the two. Yeah. Um, yeah. Come on. Uh, I have a few other shorter projects that are coming out next year that I can't talk about just yet. Okay, fine. Um, after all of those have gone, there is a novel that will be released in 2020 that I can't talk about, but that's done. I can't talk about it at all. I can't even hint to you what it's about at all. Um, but what I'm going to be working on throughout next year and possibly the year after, or a bit into the year after, is a fantasy novel. I've been sitting on the idea for a while, and I think I'm... You know how it is. You have lots of ideas, but somehow you don't know when you have the skill to write. I, I don't know. This is how it is for me. I've got ideas that I don't think I'm skilled enough yeah, to write. Yeah, I know what you mean. Okay, so so one final question then for you. If I've piqued people's interest with this conversation uh, about your work, how do they find out more about you and how do they find out about your work? Um, well, I don't, I don't have a website. I'm very, I don't know, I'm very twitchy about social media, but I am on Twitter, which is at Taddy Thompson, just one word like that. And I, I will follow you back as long as you're not a dick. Um, <laughs> and it, it, it comes with a warning, I'll follow you back, but if you start spouting nonsense, I will block you. That's what I do. I don't. I don't feel the need to engage with nonsense. So, no. um, generally, if you read my feed, you know about me. I just, I generally just say what I want. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I'm, a, I'm a big free speech person. Um, some of it might come out salty. It's not for kids sometimes. But generally speaking, <laughs> I keep it. I keep it PG-13 most of the time. <laughs> generally, I'm mostly on mostly on Twitter. That's my public facing thing it's the only it's only social media i don't have a blog i don't have anything like that i want my writing to do most of the talking for me sure sure um i do have a goodreads account but i i'm never there on, but sometimes i get i'm, I'm always amazed sometimes i just get i get a question from goodreads i'm like am i still on goodreads but i answer <laughs> it i mean I, you know i answer any question that comes along okay because i you know I, you know I, I will definitely you know if if you ask me a question on twitter i will generally answer Except if it, you know, again, you know, the rules, the dick rules apply if you're yeah, a dick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, that's how it goes. Yeah, and no, I won't, that's fair enough. And I won't engage with ignorance or anything like that. So, yeah. But otherwise, yeah, I don't, I'm not a big social media person. I, you know, I'd really rather be writing or reading or painting yes. or something like that. Okay. Now that's, that's fair enough. Uh, but and if people do want to find your work, I guess all the usual places uh, online and in bookstores, they can find it. All the usual places, anywhere where they sell books, you should find my books there. Okay. Uh, you know, so there's Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere, anywhere where books are sold, you find you'll find my books there. Yeah. Okay. And if you don't find them there, then tell them to get them. You know, so go <laughs> to your shop and say, "Hey, why don't you have this guy's books? Make them yes. order them." Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's good. <laughs> okay. Well, Tadi, thank you very much for your time. It's been a fascinating conversation. I've really enjoyed talking to you and exploring a whole bunch of themes. It's been very stimulating. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much indeed. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or me, just go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com.